before I get up and preach, I wanted to take time out of our worship service to specifically talk to those of you who are fifth grade or younger. Uh, and we've been doing this for the whole time we've had two services, uh, and we don't have children's church, because we wanted to make sure those of you who are young and with us in the worship service felt welcome, and like you were a part of this. Uh, and the reason we do that is because we want to be more like Jesus. Uh, you see, um, in the Bible, there are four books that are dedicated to telling us about Jesus's life and what he was like. And in those four, we, what we would call the Gospels, there's this story about Jesus. You see, when he was an adult, he spent a lot of his time traveling around Israel, and he was teaching, and he was preaching, and he was healing the sick, and he was doing all sorts of miracles. And as he did that, huge crowds would follow him. In fact, he got incredibly busy, and the crowds would press in around him, so much so that he couldn't even get time alone. He couldn't go and pray. Some nights he didn't even get any sleep, because in order to get away from the crowds, he had to flee into a different spot. But then he wanted to use that time for prayer. Uh, and so Jesus was an incredibly busy man, uh, so much so that he was. there were times where he was even exhausted because he couldn't get sleep to get away from some of these people. And so what his 12 disciples did were they tried to protect them. They tried to kind of steer the crowd, okay, your turn, all right, you're spending up your time, try to get, get the crowd moving so Jesus would have a little space to breathe. Well, in one of these stories, we see that there was a large group of parents who were bringing their kids to Jesus. They wanted them to meet Jesus for whatever reason, whether they needed healing or whether they just wanted their kid to see Jesus face to face, to see this, this man or this prophet or the, even this Messiah, whatever they thought Jesus was at the time. And as disciples, knowing how busy Jesus was, thought, Jesus doesn't have time for all these little kids. He's got to get to work. He's got to do something. And so we see these disciples trying to shuffle away the kids. And what happens is Jesus sees this and he rebukes them. You know what a rebuke is? I'm sure you do. If you've ever uh, done something your parent didn't want you to do and you heard that little bit of a sharper tone, that's kind of what a rebuke is, right? And Jesus rebuked his disciples. He said, no, let these children come to me. And so out of all of the busyness, Jesus took time out for little kids. Why? Because they are important to him. And I know as a kid growing up, one of the things that we do is as we get older, sometimes our younger brother or sister wants to hang out with us and be with us, but we feel we've gotten too old for them. Have any of you ever felt that way? Have any of your brothers or sisters felt that way to you? Well, what we know from the Bible is that if we want to be like Jesus, we never get too old for someone. If we ever get to the point where we feel that the younger people that are near us aren't as important or they don't, aren't worthy of our time, then we've grown, but we haven't grown like Jesus. And so before I get up and preach, I just wanted to let you know, all of you kids here, that this worship service is for you. You are part of the family of God, and each and every part you are invited into because we want you here, but more importantly, because Jesus wants you here. So with that, I'm going to move up uh, and welcome all of you uh, to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 7, because that's where we are going to be at today. So as you're opening to Revelation chapter 7, 
Um, as I was praying over this portion of scripture and as I was uh, preparing to preach it, one of the things that popped into my mind is that we need to take a little bit of a step back. Um, uh, we need to take a little bit of a step back from the scripture. The reason is sometimes I think we can get so caught up in the minute details of the text, we can forget about the big picture. And so what I want to ask for Revelation is one simple question. Why is it in the Bible? I mean, think about that. Why is Revelation in the Bible? You see, because I think a lot of times what we do with Revelation is we play a little game called Revelation Bingo. Where we take the newspaper and we're like, okay, there's war, check, all right, um, famine, all right, plague, all right, um, do, do killer hornets count as locusts? I'm not sure, maybe check, right? And so we're searching the news for what is happening in Revelation. The problem with that, there are a couple problems actually, but one problem is, Joe pointed out, you don't actually see the church mentioned in a lot of what we would think of as Revelation, these, these tribulation and these trials and, and all this is happening. You don't see the church mentioned. And so he said that what happened is the church was taken out at a certain point, and we don't see them again until the end of Revelation when God creates this new heaven and new earth, right? And so if you're looking through the newspaper to find what's happening in Revelation, you won't find it. And I know we look at this year, and a lot of us are like, man, this year is crazy. Craziest year I've ever been alive. Um, but if you really look at it historically, 2020 is not that strange of a year, right? It feels that way to us in the 21st century Western world, but there have always been plagues that, that consume the known world. There's always been warfare. There's always been these things. It's nothing new. What we see in Revelation during the time of tribulation is worse than anything we've ever experienced. So that is one thing. We can't look at the newspaper and go, okay, where's this in Revelation? Because we won't find it, right? Uh, so why is it in there? Is, it, is Revelation just here for those believers in God who are in the time of tribulation? Is that why it's there? If that's the case, why was it written to the original seven churches all the way back in the first century? Well, obviously, we don't believe this because we're preaching it to you, right? We don't believe that this is just for those people. Because um, the truth is, as it says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is useful for correction and teaching and encouragement and rebuke. And if all Scripture is that, what is revelation and why is it important to us? And the truth is, to not to overgeneralize it, but to, to make the point, Revelation shows us who God is, and it shows us his character, and therefore it shows us how us as human beings should relate to this God. And I think we're going to see that here in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to see that um, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of incredibly hard times, that we can trust God because of his character. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this chapter, and then I'm going to pray to ask God to guide us through his scripture, and then we're just going to dive in. So Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 1, says this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending 
from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 seals from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, thank you for giving us your word so that we might know you. And I pray that you would guide us as we dive into it today, and that you would reveal it through your spirit, what you would have us to learn, and that you would sink it in so that we don't just learn it, but that it changes us, that it changes our heart and our desires and our affections that we become more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So why can we trust God even in the midst of hard times? What I want you to notice about chapter 7 is where it's at in Revelation. You see, the chapter before and the chapter after are all about these trumpets and these trials and these tribulations that are being heaped upon the earth as judgment for the evils that mankind has committed since its beginning. And they are so horrible that it even says at one point that human beings cry out to the mountains that they might fall on them and cover them to hide them from all that is happening on the earth. This is a type of tribulation and a type of chaos that we have never seen before. And yet, in the midst of it is chapter 7. You see, at the very beginning of chapter 7, we see these angels who have been given power over the sea and over the land to bring about these judgments. But before they can do that, another angel says, stop, do not do a thing until we have sealed the servants of God. Why does he do that? Because God 
protects his people. Why can we trust God in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of hard times? Because God protects his servants. You see, oftentimes I find myself preaching against a common teaching um, in the West and in the 21st century, actually in the whole world in the 21st century. It's this anti-gospel that we would call the prosperity gospel. And it teaches that if you just do the right things or if you say the right things in your prayer or whatever else you have to do, you declare it out loud, then God will bring you wealth and health and prosperity right here in this earth right now. And the problem is, it doesn't take you long to look around at all the followers of God now and through the centuries and go, that's not true, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't take you very hard to figure it out that this is not true. And so how do we rectify these two things that through the centuries, God's people have been through hard times? And that from the very beginning, it has been the exception to the rule and not the rule to have peace and prosperity and religious freedom. In fact, most of the time, even now, to be a Christian means that your life is at risk. At the very least, your way of living is at risk, and your freedom is definitely at risk. How do we rectify these two things? And the temptation is to just throw a platitude out at you. Uh, I call it bumper sticker theology. Uh, that sounds nice, like God doesn't take us out of the hard times, but he takes us through it. And that has some truth to it. God sometimes does that. But what we're seeing in Scripture is that sometimes God also takes us out of hard times. You see, it's not always that simple. And God doesn't give an ex in his reason for why he takes some people out of difficulties and why he just takes some people through them protected. God doesn't give us this 10-point plan for his future for your life, does he? It would be really nice sometimes we feel if we had that, but that's not what God does. So why does the scripture continue to say that he protects his people? Because he does. And I can't give you an explanation for why he allows certain things in your life, why he brings healing to some people in this lifetime, and why he waits until he brings them to heaven to bring people, some people healing. I can't give you that. God doesn't give us an explanation sometimes. Instead, he continues to point to his character. But we can't fall into this trap either as Christians that all that God does for us is in the future. I mean, yes, he does. The future is coming and the future is what gives us hope as Christians, right? But we also have a God who intervenes in the lives of human beings right now. If we don't believe that, that robs our prayers of power. How can you go to God and ask him to intervene if you don't actually believe that he can or he will? But the God of Scripture repeatedly says, I can and I will intervene on behalf of my people and I will protect them. What that does mean is no matter the circumstances around you, none of them are beyond God's control. No matter how bad things get, God has you and he protects you, and he will not things get be, let things get beyond what he allows. And he will bring you through, whether that means in this life, or whether that means he brings you into ultimate rest and peace in the next life. God protects his people. But why else? 
We can trust God because he protects us, but we also see in the next section. So in the next section of scripture, if you're in Revelation 7, you will see this long list of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Jerusalem. Now, in order for you to understand this next point, I want to zoom back a little bit again. So imagine that you are a first century Christian. Imagine even more, you're a first century Jewish Christian. You long awaited the coming of the Messiah and all the prophecies who would usher in this new covenant. And the new covenant has come. Jesus has come. You're ushered into this new age. And you see all the New Testament writers are pointing out what you've never seen before. Hey, the new covenant is actually for all peoples, Gentiles too. But what about the Jewish people? You see, as Christianity progresses to the first century, less and less Jewish people are Christians and more and more Gentiles are Christians. And at the end of the first century, Christianity is very separated from what we would consider Judaism all the way to today. It's interesting, right? Because in the Old Testament, all these, even the new covenant promise, yes, it would graft in the Gentiles, but it was to the Israelites that this promise was given. What about them? What's going on? Paul actually has to answer this question when he is writing to the Romans. If you actually look, you don't have to do that today, but read it later. If you look at Romans 11, what you will find is that Paul actually has to give a defense for this. You see, he is known now to us as the apostle to the Gentiles. But what you see is that Paul continually went to the Jews first in every city he went to, and only when they rejected him did he go to the Gentiles. But it happened again and again and again. How can this be if God's people were the Jewish people? Has he abandoned them? Has he cast them off completely? Well, he answers this. We see in Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. So first what Paul says is there is always a remnant of Israelites, of Jewish people who are Christians, who are saved by grace. All right, That is true in the first century, that is true today, and that's true all in between. There's always that remnant. And yet the new covenant in the prophecies of the Old Testament seem to point to not just a remnant being saved, but Israel as a whole being saved. How can that be? Well, if we continue reading and we get to verse 25, it says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, and then he gives an Old Testament prophecy. In other words, what Paul is saying is that even though there's a remnant of Israelites, of Jewish people who are going to be saved, all of Israel in some form will be saved in the future in a way that we have not seen yet. And we come to Revelation chapter 7, and we see the fulfillment of this promise. 
Doesn't it strike you as odd that numbers 12,000, this number 12 repeated through 12 tribes over and over and over again? It's to show you that it's not just a remnant of Israel. This is somehow in some way Israel, the whole, the people being saved. Does that mean every single man? I don't think so, um, but it does mean that Israel as a whole will come and accept Jesus in a way that we have not seen before. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it shows us that God keeps every single one of his promises. You know how far back the promise for God to save Israel from themselves has gone? And you know how long he makes them wait, but no matter how long it may seem to us, God does not forget a single one of his promises, and he will fill every single one of his promises. And not just that, he will fulfill them, and he will be faithful despite our unfaithfulness. You see, repeatedly and repeatedly, we see Israel reject God and, and then reject God's son, Jesus, again and again. But we know we are all like them. Every single human being continually rejects God over and over and over again, and yet he still pursues us. No matter how unfaithful we are, he is unchangingly faithful. And that's important. I think a lot of times as Christians, we get it in our head, yes, we trust that God can protect us and save us and watch over us, and that he even will, but we don't, we don't mistrust God's ability or even his character, but then we look at our own lives and say, man, I have really screwed things up. I've gone too far. I don't blame God for rejecting me after what I just did. But here's the thing. Even though God would have every right to dismiss us after all that we've done against him, he doesn't. Because when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. If you are a child of God, if you've repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus, you are always a child of God. He does not reject you. He does not abandon you no matter what you have done. He continues to call you back towards faithfulness, back towards him. So we can trust God even in the midst of hard times. First, because he protects us. And second, because he keeps every one of his promises. So with the first one, it reminds us that we should pray as if God answers our prayers because he does then God's faithfulness reminds us to be patient in the midst of suffering. You see, if God will fulfill all of his promises, then we just have to wait. And we know as we continue to read Revelation that as bad as it may get for us, that what is coming next is so much better. It says that all that we go through now, and that's not to diminish what we go through now because he's talking and the scriptures is talking to people who are losing their brothers and their sisters and their mothers and fathers being martyred for the faith and knowing that they could be next. He says that all of this suffering is nothing compared to the future glory. That doesn't diminish our present suffering. It just magnifies what is coming next. And so we can trust God because he protects us. And therefore, it reminds us we should pray to him. And we can trust God because he keeps all of his promises. 
which reminds us to be patient in the midst of suffering. But as we go on, and I want to read this section starting in verse 9, we see, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the throne, clothed with robes, with palm branches in their hands. We can trust God because he saves all peoples. And I want you to think about all right now. Whether you are Jewish or you are Gentile, whether you are male or you are female, whether you are poor or whether you are rich, whether you have power or whether you are weak, whether you are looked with honor by men around you or whether you were despised by men around you, God saves all peoples. He is not a respecter of persons, which means that any who come to him in repentance and in faith in his son, he accepts. And so we can trust God because he doesn't judge us based on who we are and how the human beings around us may judge us or even how we judge ourselves. He only judges us on one thing. Are we his children or are we not? And that is why we can trust God. But I also want you to realize what he is saying. So these are people in the midst of tribulation. This is the number is just, you can't even count from every single tribe and every single language. I find that fascinating because what it tells me is that even as God is bringing out the full judgment against humanity for all its evil, even that has in it the purpose of saving us from our own evil. You see, as all these trials and all these things are happening, a countless number is coming to faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Even all this justifiable judgment being rained down on humanity for the worst and worst of our evil, even then, God is still saving people and saving a lot of people. It seems that in some way, this final tribulation and judgment is accomplishing the final work of the Great Commission to bring the gospel to all peoples and all languages and all cultures. What a beautiful picture of God's character. Yes, he is just and he will bring justice, but he is also merciful and he is overly abundantly kind in his salvation towards us. So we can trust God because of who he is. We can trust him because he protects us. We can trust him because he keeps all of his promises. And we can trust him because he saves all peoples. The last reason in this, this chapter that I want you to see uh, comes um, at the end of this chapter. So we know this great multitude, they are clothed in white, and they've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? Well, it means this great number have been martyred for their faith. So we talked about how God protects us, but we also know that he protects them in a way that doesn't let mean that they escape martyrdom. In fact, so many are martyred, they can't even count. This wholesale evil hatred and slaughter of God's people. But remember, this isn't the end of the story. Evil doesn't have the last word. And so we read here, 
what happens to this great number. And it says, starting in verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In other words, no matter how much suffering, no matter how exhausted and in pain they are, God brings healing and he brings rest. And in such a way, not that it cancels out the past, but in a way that it makes it where you don't even bring it into mind. So much is the future reward. You know, I, I often think back to Hebrews. It, it says this about faith. Uh, you need two things to enter into the presence of God. First, you need to believe that he exists, right? Kind of prerequisite. And the second thing is you must believe that he graciously rewards those who seeks them. In other words, faith is God is made up of two parts. One, believe in him, and two, to believe in his character. And I find that every Christian struggles with both of these, but usually with one more than the other. And I know a lot of people who struggle with that idea. Does God exist? And they dive into apologetics, and God reveals himself in his creation oftentimes to them. But I'm often one of those who struggle with the second aspect. I have no problem believing that God exists. I see his evidence of it written everywhere in creation. But sometimes I struggle with God's heart and with his character. I look around at the world and I see the depths of evil that he allows, even to the most innocent, even to children. And it frustrates me. I even find myself in the past angry at God. How can you allow this? And I know the logical apologetics of the question of evil. Like people explain, well, you can't judge uh, evil and good unless you have some standard for good and evil. And that's true, and I get the logics of it. But it's never quite satisfactory because God himself sets the standard. And sometimes it seems to me to allow such evil would go against that standard. How can God answer? And, and I actually... And one of the, the most frustrating times as I was wrestling with my relationship with God over this specific question, I believed him in him. I was a child of his, but I was really struggling with the problem of evil and God and his character. Uh, I read through a couple books by C.S. Lewis, and I found it enlightening. The first book C.S. Lewis wrote about the problem of evil and pain was that logical, philosophical one where he explained all these logical reasons why there's evil and, and why that actually God is the answer to that. And, and, if, and it helped the intellect. But what ended up happening to C.S. Lewis is he came face to face with the problem of suffering himself and the death of his wife. And it rocked him. Suddenly, all of that intelligence and all that logical thinking worked against him as he came up with accusation against accusation of God. And I was reading through that work that was kind of almost a diary of his pain as he was working through it. But then he came out the other end of this tragedy. And he wrote one of my favorite books of his of all time. I think it's the last book he wrote. It's called Till We Have Faces. And it's this retelling of this Greek myth. But basically, the main character 
she struggles with this question of evil and God. And through her whole life, she has this incredibly painful life, and she's always questioning God and saying, how can you do this to me? And every time she is met with silence. And to her, that's an even greater accusation against God. If you had an answer, why wouldn't you answer? Instead, you just meet me with silence. Every time I come to you in prayer, asking you to show me the reason for this pain, and you are just silent. And then it comes to the end of the book. And this main character, she comes face to face with this God. And this is what she says. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. And what other answer would suffice? You see, one of the frustrating things I found in the Bible is that God never explains himself in a way we would like. But the beautiful thing is the answer he gives fulfills all the questions we never thought to ask. Because instead of explaining every single nuance and detail why we have to go through pain and suffering and heartache, instead he sends his son to enter into the pain and suffering and heartache and betrayal with us. So that when we are hurting, instead of him giving us a lecture on why it's good for us, he comes and he sits with us. You see, the ultimate answer to the problem of suffering is found here in Revelation chapter 7. And it's not an explanation of why they went through it. It is his presence. God himself with his people. He himself brings healing. He himself brings food and water that satisfy. He himself wipes the tears from their eyes. Why can we trust God in hard times? It's because he is there in the midst of them. And so ultimately, Revelation chapter 7 is to remind us that no matter how chaotic it may get, no matter how painful and how much you have to suffer, God is there in the midst of it, and you can trust him because of who he is. And so with that, I want to close this out and just... But one more time, I just want to remind us of all of it. We can trust God in the midst of hard times because he protects us, because he keeps all of his promises, because he saves all peoples, and because he shepherds us with care. So with that, I'm going to close us with prayer as we continue worship and song. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us and to endure all the suffering and betrayal that comes with being a human being far beyond anything we could imagine. And I pray that we, in the midst of chaos and hard times and suffering, would search your word deeply because we know that the more we know you, the more we can trust you and the more we find our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.